0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 260, Hong Kong, Retreat, But No Surrender last time at 3:55 a.m. Hong Kong time on December 8th the Japanese began operation C the conquest of Hong Kong to take one of the few port cities not yet under imperial control in Southeast Asia jumping off from the city and river named Shenzhen in China proper the Japanese came in three overpowering columns pushing back the commonwealth troops in the new territories who were stationed above the gin drinkers' line. That was the first serious defense line that was to hold the enemy back, for a while, at least. But due to the sheer numbers and British mistakes, the Japanese were able to breach the line on its western end by 4 a.m. on December 10th, which made the entire position in the lower half of the new territories untenable. Hence, the British defense would have to be done from the island of hong kong itself not that it happened that quickly first colonel doy's insubordination the man who had caused the breach had to be dealt with as he crossed over into the 230th regiment's area of responsibility during his attack on the shin moon redoubt his superiors amazingly told him to pull his men out of the redoubt that had just been captured but doy refused not wanting to have the loss of two men and several more wounded, to be for nothing. This impasse was settled less than honorably by the high command coming down on one of the staff officers who supposedly had not checked Doi's enthusiasm. The redoubt stayed under Japanese control. With that settled, Doi began sending his men into the gap on the western end to make for Beacon Hill about a mile behind the line. Yet, as the Japanese were unsure of what Maltby's reaction would be, they moved cautiously that day of December 10th. After the invading troops passed by the redoubt, they were formed into small squads to move out further south to test the intentions of the enemy. Word of this got back to Brigadier Cedric Wallace, who was in command of the K.I.B., or the Kalloon Infantry Brigade, as it was his area of responsibility. So, he ordered the Second Royal Scots to launch a counterattack. The Scots were to have the Rajputs and some artillery to assist. However, Lieutenant Colonel White, leading the Royal Scots, said he would not. Simply, it was a suicide mission. So that day of the 10th, small groups of Commonwealth troops bumped into small groups of Japanese. It would be going too far to call the day's action a proper counterattack. With the probing by the Japanese completed by the 10th, when the sun rose on the 11th, a larger force was sent to take Golden Hill, a half mile northwest of Beacon Hill, but relative to the wavy gin-drinker's line, still a mile below it. Just north of here, the 5th Battalion, 7th Regiment of the Rajputs, commanded by Captain H.R. Newton, was in position, determined to hold the line. On came the Japanese at the Rajputs, even before the sun had cleared the horizon. The fighting was intense, but the ace of the Rajputs' sleeve was the six-inch shells coming down on the Japanese from the nearby Class River gunboat HMS Sakala, stationed in Gin Drinkers Bay. The Indians won the contest overall, but to make sure this line did not fall apart, the Rajputs had been guarding the left flank of the Second Royal Scots, Lieutenant Colonel White sent D Company to occupy Golden Hill formally. D Company, commanded by Captain D Pinkerton, found that some of the enemy had reached the heights of Golden Hill during their skirmish with the Rajputs. His reaction was immediate. Leading a bayonet charge himself, the Japanese, who had reached the hill, were driven back, now carrying several of their wounded. Having a few moments' peace, those Rajputs, who were wounded earlier, were able to be taken to safety to the south. Yet, truth be told, some of those Commonwealth injuries had come from the shells of the Sakala. Now that the Japanese had an idea of what they were up against, at least in this area, a larger unit was sent to retake Golden Hill. The fighting was close quarter, which left B, C, and D companies of the Scots having been bloodied, with two of their commanders now dead. The hill was lost. But reforming a line below it, the 10th Company Winnipeg Grenadiers, three brand carriers of the 1st Company of the Hong Kong Volunteer Corps, and two armored cars were ordered west to cover the gap made by the enemy holding Golden Hill. Once again, the Tai Po Road coming from the northeast and the Castle Peak Road coming from the northwest that led to Victoria Harbor were covered. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. Backing up a bit, the Japanese attack on Hong Kong was not as straightforward as it appeared. There was some sleight of hand at play. When Colonel Doy was coming at the Shing Moon Redoubt on December 9th, General Maltby was informed of this. However, he was also watching a situation to his west and south. The Japanese had staged a supposed landing on Lantau Island due west of Hong Kong proper, as well as a probing exercise at Aberdeen on the southwest corner of Hong Kong. Both were driven back by artillery fire and machine guns, but that was the idea. During the attack on the Redoubt, these other attacks forced or convinced General Maltby to hold back his reserves, the Middlesex and the two Canadian battalions. Looking back, On late December 9th or early December 10th, if some of those forces had been sent north, the Japanese would have been in for a surprise. Certainly Colonel Doi, as his probing, would have been met with indefensible losses. His court-martial would have been assured. But that's not how the events played out. Either way, by late December 10th, Maltby was ready to pull everyone back. Hong Kong would be defended. However, the naval commodore complained that he and his could not participate in this, as there were still too many responsibilities left unfilled. One of those being having his ships in place to help ferry the troops to the island. Upon this, Maltby delayed the pullback for 24 hours, now set for noon of December 11th. When that moment came, the troops and naval units got to work. First, there was to be nothing left of use to the Japanese. The China light and power station was destroyed, as was a cement works on a small nearby island. Then the dockyards were laid to waste. But showing that communication would be one of the weak points for the British throughout the entire campaign, Wallace on the mainland was still unsure if Maltby meant to entirely pull back, as opposed to setting things up in case it was needed. Indeed, Wallace thought that his troops might remain in place for another week. This was soon cleared up, which was a good thing, as 350 men of the Japanese 230th Infantry Regiment had already moved to Kowloon, the southwest corner of the mainland, just above Hong Kong, as they were hoping to stop the British from retreating. As December 11th went by, the Second Royal Scots and the Canadians went southwest to the coast, to be picked up by the Navy, while the Rajputs and the artillery units went east to Ma Lao Tong, at the top of the Devil's Peak Peninsula, on the opposite side of the Kowloon Bay, due east of Kowloon. And perhaps still not knowing what he was up against, Maltby had decided to hold on to the Devil's Peak Peninsula, whose southern tip almost touches the northeast corner of Hong Kong Island, as its heights offered a commanding view which held one of his artillery units. Further, as it was so close to the island below it, resupplying it from across the strait there was deemed relatively easy. As the Scots and Canadians made their way to the Jordan Road Pier, they were covered by the Punjabis, When night came, it was the Punjaba's turn to get clear, but they were traveling at night and had to carry their own gear as the Chinese mule handlers had disappeared into the hills, afraid of what was coming. As it was dark, mistakes were made, turns were missed. Still, the evacuation was going accordingly. That is, except for a unit of the Rajputs in the east, Having missed the road, they walked on to the Kai Tak Airport and then walked through Kowloon City, where the 350 Japanese troops were waiting. Up until the last Rajput climbed onto the ferry, they were in a firefight with the Japanese, but managed to make good their escape. Besides this exchange, the Commonwealth troops were, more or less, left alone by the Japanese, who were caught unawares. Had the invaders been more aggressive, the evacuation could have been a bloodbath that saw Maltby lose almost half of his force. By the morning of December 13th, the evacuation was done. Yet even here, the Japanese Navy paid a price for trying to step in. In the east, trying to disrupt the embarkation of the Punjabas, a Japanese cruiser moved in just close enough to bombard the enemy. But the 9.2-inch guns of the British 30th battery had a slightly longer reach, and though at the end of that range, the 30th was able to inflict damage on the cruiser. This would keep the Imperial Japanese Navy out of the rest of the fighting for Hong Kong. One last reason that the Japanese probably did not pursue the British as they evacuated was that On December 12th, a part of a regiment was ordered to take Devil's Peak, a height on the most southeastern part of the New Territories, putting it almost due east of Upper Hong Kong. The Japanese came at the height, but without artillery. This allowed the battery on top to rain down destruction, pushing the attackers back, with heavy losses. The Japanese knew that when they tried again, it would have to be with heavy artillery support, and that would take time, time enough for the Commonwealth troops to get away safely. As it had taken five days for General Sakai to take the new territories, he had five days left in which to win the rest. As such, he would try something other than a frontal assault. At 9 a.m. on December 13th, a small boat carried a white flag and a Japanese colonel, his lieutenant, some administrators, a Mrs. MacDonald, a locally important but very pregnant European, and her friend, Mrs. C.R. Lee, the wife of the secretary to the governor. The Japanese respectfully asked that the Commonwealth forces surrender, but Governor Young and General Maltby did not hesitate. The answer was no. The little ship turned around, but Mrs. MacDonald stayed on the island to have her baby. Though time was running out, General Sakai respected the British-led forces enough, or at least their weapons of war, to first weaken their defenses before a cross-harbor invasion would be tried. Using information provided by overhead patrols and fifth columnists, specific targets were shelled. Only after the small boat was safely back at the mainland did the shelling commence. First, the 9.2-inch gun on Mount Davis, on the northwestern end of Hong Kong, was taken out. Then Belcher's Fort, just to the northeast of Mount Davis, was damaged. The next day, December 14th, Mount Davis was hit again. This time, there were several casualties among the Chinese gunners. Reading the writing on the wall, some of them abandoned their posts. December 15th saw the pillboxes along the northern shore hit. Probably thinking the British-led forces would be focused on the northern and western shores, that night of the 15th, the east coast was shelled near Pak modern-day Chaiwan, which is connected to a smaller port at 9 p.m. Then three companies of Japanese infantry came over on rubber boats and improvised rafts. Yet they were quickly turned away by machine gun fire. The vessels, no match for the bullets. Here again, fifth columnists were directing the invaders with mirrors and lights. In fact, during the exchange, some fifth columnists talked the local Chinese, supporting the British, to run away. But their absence was made up for by Rear Admiral Chang of the Nationalist Chinese Army and Colonel Yi and their loyal gangs of Triads, the criminals of the island. Using grenades and tommy guns, these local criminals killed many of the locals who were loyal to, or paid off by, the Japanese. At this point, the British and Chinese nationalists were able to offer better terms to the gangs than the Japanese, who were stretched thin with their many goals of Operation No. 1. Meanwhile, the Japanese continued gathering all the boats in the area. To combat this, the batteries along the north shore of Hong Kong, as were the British gunboats, tried to either sink the vessels or kill those gathering them. Yet the Japanese persevered. Also, the Japanese shelling of the pillboxes continued, mostly along the eastern half of the northern shore. So, by the 16th, at least half of them were out of commission. With the British defensive situation thus reduced, General Sakai sent over another peace delegation on the morning of the 17th, this time with two women as hostages. Mrs. Lee again, as well as a pregnant Russian woman. But Governor Young and General Maltby gave the same answer. The result of this no was an even stronger bombardment, starting the next day, the 18th. In military parlance, this meant that an invasion attempt was imminent, and the location seemed obvious, the northeast corner of Hong Kong. As the shelling had hit the oil storage tanks, which caused black smoke to hang over the northern shore, the British concern grew as images of Japanese troops emerging from the pall played on their minds. This latest development caused General Maltby to give up on holding the Devil's Peak Peninsula, ordering the men there to cross over and take up station on the island. Thus, the stage was set. The Japanese could come at any time, using the billowing smoke to their advantage. The best Maltby could do was to reorganize his forces and pray that courage and accurate shooting was the order of the day. Greetings from Central Virginia. So, before I let you go, I wanted to take a moment and share with you my latest discovery of a binge-worthy podcast. Historical Blindness by Nathaniel Lloyd. I'll let him tell you about his show, but first I wanted to let you know that there are 67 of his episodes waiting for you, and he has recently covered Nazi occultism and those who argue the Holocaust
1: never happened. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past new episodes every other Tuesday. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps.